Welcome to the Death Panel. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two episodes a week, so you get access to the weekly bonus episode and all of our back catalog. It helps uh, support our work and lets us do stuff like what we're doing today, which is a little bit different from our normal episode structure. So we've been talking a lot about the TRIPS waiver and the situation that's going on right now with intellectual property and the vaccine. And in a lot of those conversations, I've brought up this or I've dropped a mention of research that I've been doing on ACT UP and how that movement that was based around like very radical direct action sort of was co-opted as it professionalized and as uh, these activists and organizers started collaborating directly with pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, this this feels like it reminds me a great deal of like our conversation with Dean Spade in uh, Medicare for All Week um, and the sort of the tension that exists between it, within these organizations that tr- sort of traffic in issues that relate both to like broader questions of uh, health justice, but also narrow questions about specific treatments. And the story that like emerges from this, it's it's, compl- it's it's really interesting because it's not just a simple story of like the pharmaceutical industry coming in and like actively co-op co-opting like the group. It's something a little bit more complicated. There's something going on within the group as well, right? Right, exactly. And I, I mean, ultimately, I think a lot of people that know about ACT UP think about it as like sort of this singular phenomenon, this like fantastically successful radical group. And there's this kind of like mystique to ACT UP where people are like, wow, like they were just like so effective. Like how did they get power so quickly? A lot of people in the group um, had very different ideas about how to go about the AIDS epidemic. And this was part of the design about, of, of ACT UP from the beginning. And actually part of its success was that the idea of ACT UP was going to always be horizontal. Um, but what that actually meant is that there were a lot of conflicting goals and conflicting agendas within the organization. And there were a lot of struggles over what, you know, what to do and how to proceed. So they had this very effective early uh, radical direct action culture within ACT UP where you had a lot of like very public media attention. You had really aggressive engagement with trying to raise awareness to HIV AIDS, but also trying to engender public outrage behind the cause. Because at this time you had, you know, basically the federal government not acknowledging that this was a problem. Yeah, which we'll get into in some of the clips. What we're going to do basically in this episode is we're going to hear directly from people who were in and involved with ACT UP. Most of the rest of this episode is going to be entirely devoted to uh, hearing parts of the story and the sort of struggles that happened within the group when it came specifically to uh, especially the question of whether those sort of, uh, you know, charity professionalization of beginning to, as a group, as ACT UP, collaborate directly with pharmaceutical companies, um, and in some cases with the government, but a lot of the the story here is with pharmaceutical companies um, specifically, not only whether that was a, appropriate, but also the, the clear forces within the group that were sort of marshalling for that as, uh, it seems like almost the only way Right. I mean, the the story, I think, that is often told about this, including in things like how to survive a plague, for example, right. is that sort of there were the early radical days right, of, of ACT UP. And then there was some, sort of a, a maturation that happened that, uh, the, you know, the, the sort of radicals grew up and they like they learned how to 
deal with Congress and and laws, and they learned how to deal with uh, how to deal directly with pharmaceutical companies. Right, um, and it was kind of this thing of like, oh, and then they, you know, they did all this work, they did all the self education, and then they earned their seat at the table. Right, as and they, they took it. Right. Respectability yeah. politics, exactly, 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 and professionalization. And the story that um, we're going to outline here, which um, largely props to Sarah Schulman, who is who has a book coming out, right? Yes, um, Sarah's got a new book coming out on May 18th that I'm very excited to read called Let the Record Show, which is like a history of ACT UP from 87 to 93. Right. But um, so Sarah, did, Sarah Schulman did a lot of these interviews as part of the ACT UP Oral History Project. And yes. Shout out to Sarah Schulman, Jim Hubbard and Jame Wensee because they basically coordinated and took all of this footage and all of this, um, all of these interviews. There's like a, a hundred and I think 186 interviews total. Right. So we're drawing extensively from from them, but I think you know, again the, the important thing here is that uh, it's it's clear that relatively early on this was this was a very contentious thing. Even the idea of collaborating with pharmaceutical companies uh, was an extremely contentious thing, and it, it caused real splits in the movement. So a lot of the a lot of the stuff that we're going to look at here is explicitly going to be surrounding that idea sort of right. how did how did act up go from like how, how did it go from like larry kramer writing an open letter uh saying that fauci anthony fauci should be um like shot before a firing squad to the point that like now i You've mean got during, ACT UP members having dinner at fauci's house well no not fauci's even that wife. to the to the point that now just last year peter staley did like uh, an act up member peter a former act up member peter staley did a um very convivial uh like friendly interview with anthony fauci on like instagram live about the coronavirus crisis right, right. like how did we get there basically yeah and when i was when i started going through these oral history interviews you know i, I went looking for things in mind because i knew that split happened and i wanted to understand it but what started to emerge was this like bigger picture of like a health justice movement that was abandoned because you have this sort of struggle between the what develops is the people who are on the side of collaborating with pharmaceutical companies are largely the people involved in a committee called treatment and data. So the idea of treatment and data, they were founded in 88. And the idea was to disseminate information about drug treatment to people with AIDS trying to, you know, help each other survive. Because at this point, you really don't have a lot going on other than AZT. Access to AZT is really hard. And the the treatment and research landscape at this point is a total mess because you, you have this affecting a population. And the idea is that this affects a population that is so devalued that there's really not money going towards it. So early on, the idea with T&D was to sort of disseminate research information, but it became so much more than that. You know, it became this... Um, this very influential group of very powerful, very smart people within ACT UP who had incredible access to people in power. And they started really influencing, you know, research agendas. And that's not necessarily bad. But there were things that <laughs> there were things that were set aside and deprioritized. I mean, you'll hear them literally talk about how the treatment and data committee advocated for the idea of separating like their their intention essentially was that quote unquote medical issues were separate from social issues, which I right. think the as you know the death panel we would say like they're you know essentially trying to separate politics from it in a right. way you know no I think they I don't think that they would talk about it that way. Um, however, what they're essentially doing is trying to like silo off the medical treatment aspect 
the medical developments aspect of their work against stuff like other huge successes of ACT UP. Like like getting the CDC definition updated to include women and people who use drugs. Like right, that was right. like a huge action that people don't talk about. But ACT UP for, for four years applied extreme pressure because the CDC definition, and this is actually something we've talked about over and over with COVID, like, you know, that there's no code for long term COVID. So people are getting like insurance denials when they're getting sent home from the ICU with like a prescription for oxygen because COVID's only an acute diagnostic category at this point. You know, you had the issue where you had people who were dying with AIDS who couldn't get on SSDI because the CDC definition of HIV AIDS didn't include certain people who had the disease because it was the idea early on was that it was the quote unquote gay disease. So ACT UP put incredible pressure, unrelenting pressure on the CDC for four years. And they were able to update that definition and they didn't get everything they wanted out of that. But that's one of those fights that um, that you really just don't hear about. You hear about, you know, the collaboration to get the protease inhibitors and all those stuff about getting the cocktail started and, you know, sitting down for for meetings with Roche and doing this collaboration and, and changing the research and going to all these galas and, and whatever. And it's it's like, it's weird because um, this sort of second history of, of ACT UP, this more outsider movement, this uh, movement that was like part of ACT UP that was more led by people of color and women is really suppressed in the narrative. And the dominant narrative of sort of white gay men who already had access to power collaborating with pharma to create, you know, something closer to the cure has become sort of the broader popular imagination of what ACT UP's legacy really is. Yeah. So um, I think without much further ado, let's let the sort of archives speak for themselves. I think. Well, they never do that exactly. <laughs> yeah, sure. So let's, let's go uh, to the source material. Yeah, let's go. Let's so let's go to the source material. Before we do that, though, this is so this is to, to start us off. I just wanted to read a statement from Larry Kramer reflecting on the earlier days and the kind of thing that the story that we're showing, I think, moves very, very intentionally actually away from. So uh, this is Larry Kramer speaking in 2007. So here we go. Quote, these are just a few of the things ACT UP did to make the world pay attention. We invaded the offices of drug companies and scientific laboratories and chained ourselves to the desks of those in charge. We chained ourselves to the trucks trying to deliver a drug company's products. We liberally poured buckets of fake blood in public places. We closed the tunnels and bridges of New York and San Francisco. Our Catholic kids stormed St. Patrick's at Sunday Mass and spit out Cardinal O'Connor's host. We tossed the ashes from dead bodies from their urns onto the White House lawn. We draped a gigantic condom over Jesse Helms' house. We infiltrated the floor of the New York Stock Exchange for the first time in its history so we could confetti the place with flyers urging the brokers to sell Wellcom. We boarded ourselves up inside Burroughs Wellcom, now named GlaxoSmithKline, which owns AZT, in Research Triangle, so they had to blast us out. We had regular demonstrations, die-ins as we called them, at the Food and Drug Administration and the National Institutes of Health at city halls, at the White House, in the halls of Congress, at government buildings everywhere, starting with our first demonstration on Wall Street, where crowds of us lay flat on the ground with our arms crossed over our chests or holding cardboard tombstones until the cops had to cart us away by the van full. We made massive demonstrations at the FDA and the NIH. 
There was no important meeting anywhere that we did not invade, interrupt, and infiltrate. We threatened Bristol Myers that if they did not distribute it immediately, we would manufacture it ourselves and distribute a promising drug some San Francisco activists had stolen from its Canadian factory and had duplicated. So, yeah. yeah. When you're listening to this, you know, just listen for the movement that could have been. You know what I mean? Or how it got, how it changed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and again, like major, major appreciation for the work of the ACT UP Oral History Project, uh, who did all of these interviews that you're about to hear clips from. So yeah, let's dive right in, shall we? We begin with Greg Bordowitz, interviewed December 17th, 2002. ACT UP initially was defensive. We In 1985, people don't realize that in, in the mid-80s, at very high levels within the Reagan administration, uh, quarantine and mandatory HIV testing were considered viable policy options. You had people like Buckley who said that gay men should be tattooed uh, on their ass and drug users should be tattooed on their arms so they, the visible threats would, uh, the, the invisible threats would be rendered visible. We were aware of the history of internment of the Japanese during World War II. The native had a cover. I remember that was very significant to me. I remember clearly it was a picture of Japanese interned during World War II. Mm-hmm. We were very scared of that the Reagan administration was going to put people with AIDS in internment camps. And I think that we came close to that in this country. I, I do not think we were we were simply panicking or engaging in some kind of conspiratorial fantasy. Um, I remember thinking through those problems mm-hmm. and what, what, would, what would be a legitimate response? How could we defend ourselves from being put into camps? And I remember thinking aloud that perhaps armed resistance would be one justifiable means. Mm-hmm. That's how serious the threat seemed to me at that time. What the FDA did was shift the group away from a defensive posture to, to an offensive posture. When the FDA action put us on the offense and enabled us to come up with a, a, a vision for the way that healthcare should be done in this country, the way that drugs should be researched and sold um, and made available. And most importantly, and I keep returning to this, the idea that people with AIDS should be at the center of the public discussion on AIDS. And the FDA might not have been the, com- the only reason this happened, but it coincided with a shift. We had wrested control of the public discussion on AIDS away from the hands of the right wing in this country and toward the direction of, uh, or in the hands of people with the, d- the disease itself. Mm-hmm. And that was a conscious strategy on our part. I mean, I think when we were organizing the FDA, we knew that this was different, that we were going on the offensive. Because we weren't just making statements that uh, were responded to uh, assaults uh, from the right. We were going, uh, we had our agenda. We were just going to seize control of the FDA and run the fucking thing ourselves. Um, we knew we weren't actually going to do that, but this was it. We're just going to seize control, and um, which is why it was so important. Even though many people found that frightening, I was told Greg back off of that rhetoric. I just it was incredibly important to just stay on point with that rhetoric. Who told you to back off? Do you remember? I don't remember exactly. Okay. Jay Blotcher, April twenty fourth, two thousand and four. Can you 
Give me your analysis of the split in ACT UP, how you characterize that. Talking about the Treatment and Data mm -hmm. Committee and mm -hmm. that? Well, the fact is that the Treatment and Data Committee, in addition to being uh, composed of brilliant people, were composed of people with a certain amount of arrogance. Uh, one of them is our dear, you know, was he MacArthur Genius Grant? Mark Harrington. God bless Mark. It must be a lonely life to be the genius that he is because you're dealing with people who are just not as bright as you. And, you know, the fact is that these guys really did hold the key to some amazing information. And I guess genius without humility is, you know, that's a liability. But they didn't have that. You know, Peter Staley and the others, and, you know, they are brilliant. And, I'll, uh, you know, props to them. But uh, the way that they interacted with the rest of um, ACT UP, you know, they didn't play so well with others, you know. And uh, often they, you know, they were very autonomous. They wouldn't tell us what they were doing or the fact that they were sitting with, you know, they were having meetings with major pharmaceutical companies. And I can understand that we grew at odds in terms of our objectives because ACT UP as a whole was out to shame and pillory and otherwise denigrate the pharmaceutical companies for all of their previous crimes. Mark and Peter and the T&D committee were about making nice with these people so that we could move on and they could help us, you know, they could lower their prices, they could improve their clinical trials, they could be more accurate in their advertising or their, well, back then it was pre, it was before they were advertising directly to the consumer, but they're advertising to, to doctors. Um, you know, so I can understand in retrospect with the cool retrospect of an, an older head, what was going on at the time we felt they just weren't being diplomatic enough with us and that they were being too diplomatic with them you know and they you know the fact is that the pharmaceutical industry continues to be this grotesque blow money bloated entity that feels that if you throw money at anything you can get whatever you want and you know what they usually do and you know they give so much money to or they give perks to doctors so that the doctors constantly, you know, use or prescribe their their drugs. And there were perks that they were giving these guys too. These guys were going for cocktail parties and this and that. And it it sort of seemed at odds with our unspoken vow of grassroots, you know, living. You know, that these guys, it was getting a little cloudy as to not as to what side they were on that would be a, a simplistic uh, analysis but whether you know they were sort of being bought slowly in in sort of a way um so what what happened then was a treatment action group or treatment yeah they called them they decided they kept going back tag didn't know whether it wanted to be treatment action group or treatment activist group, but they settled on treatment action group. So that was like the first split. And 
I don't know. You know, did they take the best people with them? Were there any people left? Uh, I don't know. But the the fact is that ACT UP, ACT UP Strength was really dealing with a lot of the social issues in addition to the medical issues. And I think maybe we became an organization dedicated more to, like, the social issues were what we protested, but the medical issues were what we allowed our people to go and work on without the the band of activists behind them. We were empowering our treatment people, you know, after TAG left, empowering our treatment people to go to demonstrate, to go to meetings, to sit on commissions. Um, it was growing pains, you know, it, these things happen. It didn't help, like I said, that, you know, a lot of these people were brilliant and arrogant, you know, the Mark Harringtons and this and that. Um, but, you know, that's what happened. Conversely, something like Housing Works broke up with, broke off from ACT UP, not because of, you know, censure or, or bad vibes, bad feelings, but because they felt that they could be more effective as a standalone group. So the, the ACT UP Housing Committee became Housing Works, and we still worked with them. So not every group that spun off created some sort of friction. You know, we recognized that the group was getting very large and that, you know, it helped that groups were spinning off and, and starting their own, you know, because as we revved up and became more powerful, ACT UP found itself with a mounting number of agendas on our plate, and it really became overwhelming. And nobody else was doing it the way that we were in that direct action, rude, uncompromising way, which I, all, which I consider all those to be virtues. Um, people were, you know... Um, yeah, other people were towing the line. In fact, they were using, you know, using us as bad guys in order to gain leverage. You know, I mean, I, I don't have any tangible proof of this, but I could say with great certainty that if a demonstration, if a, if an issue came up, and ACT UP was in the streets fighting about a certain issue, a mainstream AIDS organization would go to the government and say. See those people fighting there? You know, they're rude and they're crude and, you know, they're not, they're not compromising. We, however, we mainstream AIDS group, we compromise. So why don't we come to the table and you can talk with us and we'll be a lot easier. So I think we played the bad guys so that these other organizations were empowered to get in more and to sit down with the, the, the heads of the government and the heads of the pharmaceutical companies. So, you know, that's the sacrificial role that, you know, the bad boys play. Dudley Saunders, January 18th, 2003. Now, before you, you said that before you came in, a lot of people had left. Right. D. And I actually joined TAG as well. So the old Treatment and Data Committee mm -hmm. formed TAG. With Treatment the Action Group. And left ACT UP completely. Yeah. Why did they do that? Uh, my, because they were frustrated by, because basically they wanted to do strictly science-related activism. And why could they not do that in the context of ACT UP? Well, because there were a lot of other, there were a lot of social issues dealt with in ACT UP. Things including access, you know, 
access. Uh, and also, you know, letting the things that made ACT UP work, which was that you know um, people defined for themselves what their issues were, and then they made everybody else deal with them. And I think probably the thing that most I know what probably drove uh, most of those people out uh, was when. It was actually when Max. I think was it. I think it was when Maxine said she wanted to stop all, all discussions with, pharmaceutical companies, do a moratorium on it. And so they left because they. They said, "That's it. We can't operate like this." So the Maxine that Saunders referenced is Maxine Wolf. Here is Wolf interviewed February nineteenth, two thousand and four. They were so afraid oh, of us by that time. No. Okay, we had done all these demonstrations. Mm -hmm. We had gotten groups that were so diverse to support this campaign, okay, from all over the country. We showed that we could get Congress people who would start to investigate the mm. CDC. I mean, you know, we, we, we used every single tactic that you could possibly use. It was really like community organizing and political organizing at its best. You know what I mean? It had it had a whole set of radical politics associated with it, and it was using every kind of organizing technique. Um, and it also showed, you know, people always think that ACT UP was like, you know, didn't have any contact with, um, you know, it was sort of like the radical group to everybody else's conservative group, you know? And the truth is, is that there were many, many, you know, service providers across the United States and around the world who really valued what we did. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't see us as being like, you know, outside of them. You know, because we got in touch with most. I mean, people don't know that. They think that everything about ACT UP was about either capitulating to the government, you know, in the case of like selling out, or, you know, like not having anything to do with the government. But I think that in its best mm -hmm. form, the thing that was amazing about ACT UP and the best things it did mm -hmm. was that it did both without giving up either. You know, right. you didn't capitulate to anybody, and you still got something. Right. Um, well, when you talk about capitulation, yeah, are you thinking of something specific? It doesn't, you know, you can do a lot of things. There are people who, you know, just, you know, ended up working, you know, like sitting on drug company boards mm -hmm. and actually believing that they were doing something, you know, to help people, you know, when they were actually being pawns of, of the drug companies. Um, you know, I've gotten to this philosophy mm -hmm. about that stuff, which is, right. you know, because, because, because ACT UP was about something real, mm -hmm. it was about people dying. I don't know if you know this poem that uh, Irina Klepfitz wrote, it's called Beshert. And it's a poem, you know, she, she was a, a survivor, a Holocaust mm -hmm. survivor, she's a lesbian, and she was a kid, and she and her mother both survived. Her father was a resistance fighter in Poland, and she's exactly my age. And she wrote this poem about the Holocaust, and it's called Beshert. And um, basically, Beshert means sort of it's so be it, okay? And some people think that it means it's predestined, but mm -hmm. the way that I was always taught about it was it means like so be it, okay? And basically what she says is, you know, people survived the Holocaust for a whole range of reasons. And some of the reasons mm -hmm. were things that they were luck. And some was because they were in the right place at the right time. They, were in, they died because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know what I mean? Like there's, that you can't judge what people did to survive in a way because it was so horrible hmm. that they had to do whatever. And that, so be it. That's what they did. You know what I mean? Like, that, the, that the thing was, was so horrendous that you can't 
judge it by the same standards. But, and I did want to say one other thing mm. about the CDC definition, which I forgot to say, mm. which I think is like really important, which is that uh, that the, one of the things that was amazing about that was that people came together to work on that that nobody that everybody said would not work together. Mm. Okay, there were gay men, there were women of color, straight women of color, lesbians of color. There were straight women. There was you know, I mean, it was just like every possible kind of person came mm -hmm. together to work on that thing, and that's what was amazing about it. You know, there was none of this like, you know, this is about you, it's not about me. I mean, even my own affinity group, which people, you know, which my affinity group had 24 people in it. There were only seven of us that were women, okay? And several of the men had HIV. Several of them are dead at this point, okay? They spent like four years working on a campaign about changing the CDC definition for women and for poor people and for drug users. And that is like an, mm. you know, something that nobody ever says about ACT UP. They always talk about gay white men, gay white men, gay white men, you know, selfish gay white men. And that was not, and there, we got tremendous support in ACT UP for that work and from other places too. So I just want to say that. Mm -hmm. um, okay, the moratorium. Um, Actually, it was Tracy Morgan's idea that there should be a moratorium. Mm -hmm. And the reason she decided to do that was because when we did the Women in AIDS conference in, in um, Washington, and as we were doing actions against James Kern, Mark Harrington was down there with a woman who, I don't even know her name, who was on the um, Treatment and Data Committee, and they were meeting with the very people who we were fighting against. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And what's more, they were claiming that this woman spoke for women, and even though she had not worked on any of the women's stuff and actually had not done anything about women and HIV. So then she came, you know, came to the, on, a, on, a, con, on a national women's conference call and had this proposal that we had this moratorium on anybody meeting with any government officials because it was undermining the work that we were doing, blah, 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 blah. I always thought that the good thing about ACT UP was that people did both, okay? And that that had been uh, an ethos in ACT UP for a really long time, okay? And I thought that the one-two whammy was the best way to go, mm -hmm. okay? Sort of the good cop, bad cop kind of thing. Um, so I was not in favor of that at all. And I said, I, you know, that I thought that what worked equally as well was everybody should talk about it. Like that, they couldn't. The government couldn't claim that one person spoke for them. If you, if you let women all over the country demand to meet with the CDC and let them say what they wanted, then it would be the same thing as not anybody talking to them because they would get so many different points of view that who would they claim spoke for anybody? Okay. But meanwhile, there was there had been a lot of tension in ACT UP that Tracy had created between herself and most of the people on treatment and data, and especially with Mark Harrington. They were like daggers at each other, okay. And so there had been this whole, uh, and I, I think that part of it also was is that there was a small grouping of men who actually believed that anything that we did about women took away from them. That was a small grouping of men. It wasn't the majority of the men in ACT UP. And a lot of those men had, had gotten in to the um, inside of the, um, NIH, you know, the National mm -hmm. Institute of Health, and they thought that the progress of the AIDS movement depended on them, you know, being tight with all these people. Why they all thought that Tony Fauci was cute, I will never <laughs> understand. All of the women thought he was a twerp. 
I don't, what can I say? The men were turned on by him. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, there was this tension that was happening mm -hmm. because, because who, some of the women that were on, so then we all said that we would bring it to ACT UP. I have never felt that bringing something to ACT UP was like a big deal. People voted up, they voted down. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's what it's about. That's what a democratic organization is. I always felt that that was a good thing to do, you know. And, um, but somehow word got back to um, Mark and you know, the people that were on, certain group of people on treatment and data that, you know, we were gonna call for this moratorium. It was gonna prevent people from doing anything. And they had already decided in a way that whole grouping of men, that, that their interests lay in, in, in pushing the drug stuff. And, and unfortunately, their view of things, which was that politics was separate from medicine, prevailed eventually. But at, but at that point, that was not what ACT UP was. The beauty of ACT UP was that it was about the fact that medicine is political. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so... They, there was all kinds of stuff that was going on. The, the, the tension in the room was palpable. So we had this discussion in ACT UP. Tracy never spoke publicly about it, even though it was her idea. Hmm. And it was voted down. And what, but in spite of the fact that it was voted down, TAG split off. They were going to split off anyway. They hmm. were going to split off anyway because they had become convinced that the way to proceed was to separate politics from medicine. That is what their point was, okay? They actually believed that their biggest impact was to design trials with the people at NIH. That's what they ended up doing. That's what TAG became, treatment advocacy. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they would sit on all these committees. They would sit on committees with drug companies, you know. And, you know, I mean, I think that partly, they were, partly it was whatever they wanted to get out of it for themselves, and partly it was what they saw their, their way of doing politics, you know. Um, they wanted, they tried to do this reorganization of the NIH that would literally give them control of it. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. And they, they put out this thing that there were, like, social issues and there were political, and there were medical issues, and that, that they were about the medical issues. Moises Augusto, December 15th, 2002. At that point, also going to the treatment and data committee meetings, I realized that um, the reason why a lot of this guy kept being healthy was because they had access to the information. The guys in treatment and, and data. treatment and data committee. And they had access to Fauci, they had access to all these people, and I started to wonder, you know, I want that. And I want that to everybody else. Right. So what treatments were they doing at the time that nobody else was doing? I remember um, people were in clinical trials for DDI, um, 3TC when it just started, which is uh, Epiver now. Uh, there was some studies on D4T. You know, it was mm -hmm. all the beginning of a non-nucleoside. Um, and then evolved, you know, it just became uh, with the... And at that time, what were most people taking while they were ACT. in... ACT. ACT. Okay, so you're starting to learn everything and figure it out. Now, at what point did you have enough knowledge to start to be able to critique the protocols? Um, I think as you learn as you go, you know, I don't think there is such a thing that you go to a seminar and you know you get it all and then you know you I think there was one issue about 
Okay, I remember there was in the pharmacology committee, you, you want this? Yeah. There was an issue about uh, doing, they were, the, the ACTGs, they were not doing enough trials on pharmacokinetic. And that means, you know, the pharmacology uh, of the drugs, uh, uh, half-life, all that stuff, um, toxicities. Um, and the pharmacology community was frustrated because there was, they were not being utilized enough. And there was a lack of data. And that was when the protease inhibitors were coming in in trials. And I remember that, you know, I was struck by it. You know, it's like, you know, we don't know how this is going to affect people. Uh, safety matters. You know, there was all these side effects that were starting to be seen. Um, and we need more pharmacology information, which at the end, it ended up to be so true. Um, so that kind of motivated me to get into the protocols and see, you know, what was lacking there. Um, and uh, remember that they, I had to write a letter to Tony Fauci as a community person. And, you know, I will go and, and, and ask the guys from TND once in a while. Um, but I will try to do it, you know, learn myself as much as I could. Um, and, and that was, I think, that was, a very, that was a time where I realized I knew more than I thought. Mm. You know, because always always was with this kind of insecurity that I didn't know enough. Um, and it's, it's like that feeling, I always say, when you're a person of color here, it's like you have to prove yourself twice mm -hmm. and three times. And in the treatment and research area, you have to prove yourself like five times. To the scientists or to the T&D? Both. Why was that? Because, I mean, first you come with a thick accent, right? Mm -hmm. And people think that if you have an accent, you're stupid. I don't know. I got that a lot of times. Mm -hmm. But um, how can I say? You know, I was going toward politics that fit within the grassroots movement that already happened even before or at the same time that act was happening, was happening in the Latino community in New York, was happening in the African-American community in New York. That was what I wanted to, you know, that, that was where I wanted to go. People, you know, communities that this was an item added to the list. Communities that already were disenfranchised, you know. I was doing activism and having, you know, a great time with it with people that never experienced that kind of discrimination. Well, some of them, but you know what I mean. Like access to care was not that much of an issue for the majority of the members that had access to Fauci, had access to trials. They could go into a trial because they had a good doctor. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? While all these people that I felt more identified with didn't. And what about most of the people in ACT UP? Did they have the same access that the T&D guys had? I, I can't, you know, I don't know about everybody in ACT UP. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I can't say that they did. What I knew, knew was that the, the people that I knew that were working on care and treatment and research had that access. Dudley Saunders. So were you mostly... Yeah. 
remember anything. It's like, I can't remember anything I did at all. Now, were you guys in contact mostly with scientists or with pharmaceutical companies? I dealt mostly with scientists. And where were they based? Where were they working? They were all over the country. I mean, I'd r usually run into them. I mean, it would be at the conferences. Would they be working out of in universities, or were they working for pharmaceutical companies? Some of them were. I think. Well, whether not, whether they were working directly for a pharmaceutical company wasn't was neither here nor there because they were usually funded by a pharmaceutical company. So, was there a struggle about which drugs should be funded and which studies should be funded and which ones not? Yeah, it was the same problem that we kept running into. That they, I mean, you, the number of studies that were about AZT, which at that time we knew was just you know a waste of time. We knew enough about it. We weren't going to discover anything new. They kept funding more studies right. of it because, well, there's a well, a there's a lag time, mm -hmm. you know, on getting you know getting your your uh, grant proposal together. And often, I mean, it frequently through no one's fault at all. By the time they got something approved. So much time had gone by that the question was answered. But what are you going to do, throw away the money? No, they would do it actually a lot of times because they needed to eat, which is pathetic. Mm -hmm. And we were always going to fight like, no, cancel it, you know, which was going to be really bad for them. But the other scientists fully agreed with us. Was there, was there an issue about uh, consumer base, that certain drugs, if they had a potentially large market, would receive more money for research? Well, at that time, I mean, anything HIV-based was going to have a large market. That was clear. And in fact, there were times we tried to mention that. I remember this coming up in meetings, trying to get this across to companies, that uh, you, know, you could make a lot of money here. And I, there was some argument about people were uncomfortable bringing that up. You know, uh, there was a certain feeling like, you know, should we be talking about their profit motive? And should people be making you know, money off of other people's sickness? There was a lot of, you know, moral discomfort there. Greg Bordowitz. One note, the Governor Cuomo mentioned in the following clip is Mario Cuomo. So uh, when did you leave ACT UP? Oh, 93, around 93. Uh, why was that? I first started getting alienated from ACT UP around the Stop the Church action. Mm -hmm. um, why? Because I didn't think that we could gain anything from the church. The church is not a governmental institution. Uh, the church has some contracts to do service work. But the church, by and large, is not a, a body that makes policy about AIDS that I have to live under. Mm -hmm. And um, I really wanted us, I felt that ACT UP was a healthcare movement and that ACT UP could achieve uh, universal healthcare within New York State. And uh, that's where all of my organizing went. From so we did the FDA action, right? Mm -hmm. We on the bus down to the FDA, we planned the city hall action. I was sitting there with David and Peter Staley and a bunch of other people, and I and I, I think it was me. I said, "Look, we have to go to city hall." make it local. That's the next action. Mm -hmm. Michael Nesline was there. Yeah. And um, I remember because Michael Nesline was te teasing us like that we were some kind of cabal or something like that. And um, But I said, that has to be the next action. And when we got back from the FDA, I, I immediately started working on this, the um, Target City Hall action. 
and started building consensus for that within the group in the way I talked about going to individual meetings and saying that this is our next target, this is probably the best next target. And, um, and so that's the action that we did. And from there, uh, I was involved with a bunch of organizing a number of actions, but I, I was interested in and organized an action up in Albany. I traveled up to Albany. It wasn't very successful. Um, it didn't get a lot of press, and uh, it was a lot of effort, and wasn't much that we got back from it. But my vision or idea f for the group at that time was that we would just keep hammering on Albany. Right? It was significant enough. I remember uh, Mark Orgema, we passed by the uh, governor's mansion, and Cuomo came out and had a conversation with us. And Mark Orgema was the person, point person, who took the governor on. And the governor was very responsive. And of course, he's a kind of brilliant guy, Cuomo. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that was actually successful. And my idea was we just, OK, this is time for ACT UP. Enough of this, you know, we're all over the place. Now it's time to kind of dig in for a long campaign. And because uh, we really have the opportunity here to get universal health care for the state. And that brought me into tensions with a whole bunch of people. OK, so now, by this time, I'm an out person with HIV within the group. And yet, that goes against the grain of the position of being an out person with HIV within the group. Because to, to be out with HIV in the group, you're really a kind of drugs into bodies first mm -hmm. and foremost as a politic. And um, I guess it had to do with treatment decisions and stuff. I didn't really feel like there was a lot of treatment decisions in front of me. And uh, I, you know, I don't know if I had faith or not faith that there would be a cure in my lifetime. I pretty much thought I was going to die from this thing. And I felt like you know, that it was pretty clear that ACT UP and the AIDS movement was a catalyst for the, healthcare, the growing healthcare movement at that time. So I was very much interested in that, and that ACT UP could join unions, and the unions could come together with, and I, I just thought it was this coalition politics, this idea that um, sexual politics and race politics and feminist politics could come together in such a way with the unions. And um, I really wrote myself quite a film international Cuba script. And, um, <laughs> that increasingly brought me into alienation with the group, because the group was going in another direction. And the group did not want to slow down for a long campaign. What was the other direction? Pretty much all over the place the same, but uh, the group was very much kind of chasing its own energy of uh, flash, of uh, big media events, right? And the FDA was beautiful because the media following the FDA was amazing. You had Peter Staley on Crossfire, right? That night. Mm -hmm. And we completely won, we had shifted, the, like I said before, we shifted the ground and wrested the discussion on AIDS out of the hands of the right wing. And all of a sudden, we had people from the group representing people with AIDS in the conversation. And the door to the FDA broke down quickly, and meetings followed, and that all kinds of tensions unfolded from that. Alexander Uhas, January 16th, 2003. Um, that was part of it. But a lot of the people that I met making those videos were very critical of ACT UP. So um, there was a tension within the AIDS community from the very beginning about, uh, you know, what sort of what kind of work to do, what counted as activism, 
um, allegiances and alliances that had a lot to do with race and class, mm -hmm. primarily. And most of the people that I was dealing with around women and AIDS were feminists who were coming out of women of color organizing. Mm -hmm. And like well, some of those women that I've, that I've named and then other women, mm -hmm. um, you know, that I worked with on other projects. And you know, say, for instance, the Brooklyn AIDS Task Force, where I worked very closely with a lot of those women. Uh, that um, very active, very alive, very committed activist group of people were quite uncertain about ACT UP. And what was the problem? Well, you know, to put it one way, in the eyes of those activists, people who saw themselves as activists, but people who were working within already a kind of nascent, begin, the beginning of an AIDS infrastructure, um, you know, it was, it was to, to, be, to be arrested and to be um, that flamboyant spoke smacked of a kind of elitism and privilege mm -hmm. that these women themselves who worked in these agencies were skeptical about, but certainly the people they served. I mean, it just, you know, as far as they were concerned, you know, this was not the communities that they were serving. Frank Jump, November 1st, 2003. But it just, we, so, wait, we knew just, what advantages we you had as white You turned over tables men. And, yeah. at a, at a Ritz-Carlton. And then what'd you do? You just ran away? Did they come after you? Well, yeah, they started, you know. Did you get arrested? No, no, we didn't get arrested. You know, the first time I actually tried to get arrested, I couldn't even get arrested. Uh, it was the, the march, I mean, the, uh, the demo at Wall Street. The first uh, ACT UP Wall Street demo, I'm laying in the street, and the cop comes over to me and says, are you on the list? I said, what list? The, the, the list, the people that are getting arrested, are you on the list? I'm like, go talk to him. So I go over to Larry. Larry, what list are they talking about? Oh, you want to get arrested? You should have told me. I would have put you on the list. I said, what is this, fucking Studio 54? I want to get arrested today. No, no, don't get arrested because you, you, you get lost in the system. All the people being arrested are already processed and I'm like, that's awful, doesn't it? Like defeat the purpose and he's like, no, 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 no. All the press wants to know is 26 people got arrested and blah, blah, blah. So the cop's like, yeah, listen to him, listen to him. Get arrested next time. So, um, <laughs> that's interesting. I haven't heard that one before. Yeah, it was, you know, we worked with the police in the very beginning mm -hmm. because they told us it would be better if we worked with them. And then we started not working with the police and they got much more aggressive with us, like the demo in front of um, the post office on tax day, April 15th. They literally scooped us out of the street with their billy clubs and Marty Robinson wound up with a uh, cop's shoe and a walkie-talkie and... Before you knew it, we had found each other somewhere in the village, and you know some of us gotten beaten up, and that was the end of the love affair with the police. Alexandra Yuhas. You know, I knew there were feminists that I knew, who I respected a lot, myself included, who were also somewhat. What's the word I want? Um, I 
oh, it's not skeptical. You know, how could it be this organization that came from nothing that took to itself the languages, the languages of feminism, the languages of gay and lesbian civil rights, the languages of civil rights, had so much money, had so much, answer. well, you know the answer, had so much power so quickly. If you did something through ACT UP, it had infrastructure, it had support. If you did it anywhere else, it didn't. That feeling, you know, as a, you know, as a feminist, who knows that no women's organization I'll ever belong to will have the cloud of ACT UP, that no lesbian organization will ever have the cloud of ACT UP. That was also alive for me. And it, 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 it provided a kind of learning experience and attention. Then men have access to money and power, especially white men. A lot of the people who came to ACT UP, the politicos, who had come from other organizations, who had worked in struggles that stayed small and stayed poor and stayed invisible and stayed all the things they did. It's not like people were smarter in ACT UP. It's not like you can't gloss, you know, put a gloss across them all. But, you know, people just tapped into money, the places where there's power, you know, the heads of hospitals, the heads of news agencies, the person who runs the New York Times, or whatever it was, you know. And if, if we didn't, if someone in ACT UP didn't know those people, they knew how those organizations run. Mm -hmm. They knew how they ran as insiders, because people worked at them in a way that, in organizing that I've done since, it just hasn't been the same immediate access to kind of both money and kind of structures of power. Moises Augusto. So given all of this brilliant level of comprehension and ability to change the government, how come access was the issue that got left behind? You know, I don't want to say it was left behind, okay. right? Because there was, this, there was an insurance committee. You know, there, there were committees and people the issue of access was addressed. What I'm saying is, if it was appropriately addressed in the context of access in disenfranchised communities, two different things. You know, you can have problems with your insurance, but we're talking about disenfranchised communities that historically had a very tough time with biomedical research had a very tough time accessing good health care, and were already confronting not just AIDS, but other diseases like drug abuse, tuberculosis, and things like that, that were, you know, it was part of their daily life. That, well, do you remember like specific issues or proposals being raised on the floor of ACT UP and being discarded or put to the side that would have addressed what you just raised? <sighs> I don't even remember if that came up to the floor, mm. you know? And if it did, I honestly don't remember. And would you, would you raise that in committee discussions? Um, I will try, mm -hmm. 
But after the Latino caucus started and it was kind of like shaky internally, the uh, majority action committee kind of disintegrated. And I think, I think there was a sense of, and I'm going to speak for myself. Right. I'm going to speak for myself. I was, um, uh, how you said, I was frustrated with the lack of will to do that. I was disappointed with the, some of the answers I will get from people like, we can't fix everybody's life. Well, who would say that? Uh, you know, oh, okay. I, don't, I don't think that's important. But, but you're saying that that did end up being the dominant position. It ended up like, you know, like a majority of the people that I look up to because I thought the work they did was so critical, mm -hmm. you know, were not really that much into doing work related to access to care and treatment in disenfranchised communities. And what was the reason? You know, and it was like, you know, hitting your head against the wall. Mm. And I, I don't need to point, pinpoint a person, but that's how I felt. I felt that I was hitting my head against the wall. And it's, it was important work, you know, but, you know, maybe they didn't have enough time. And what they were doing was amazing, but we needed Somehow, somehow, you know, if we were to call ourselves the activists in the movement, that had to be part of the agenda. Mingwen Ma, January 15th, 2003. Looking back, what would you say was ACTUP's biggest disappointment and what would, what would you say was ACTUP's greatest achievement? I would say the biggest disappointment for me was that, you know, even a group like ACT UP was not able to, that, that, that it, it ended up being these issues around gender and race that, in my view, you know, contributed to the downfall of ACT UP. But then at the same time, I don't necessarily, it was a disappointment, but I don't necessarily fault the group for it because I think that it's unrealistic to expect a group of this composition to deal with those issues. Can you be specific and, about what those issues were? Well, you know, issues about race and gender. I mean, this is a group predominantly of gay white men, mm -hmm. <laughs> middle class gay white men, right? So I do not expect it. But specifically, how did that play out? What were the actual conflicts? I mean, I think the actual, the actual conflicts like I was saying, I don't remember what that big argument was about, but, but generally speaking, you know, I don't think that, you know, issues about women and AIDS, which are about, about uh, AIDS and HIV and people of color groups are really on people's minds other than as a, uh, you know, the sort of litany of, of PC you know, oh, of course we have to care about women, of course we care about people of color, but are they actually committed to it? Are they actually passionate about it? No, they're not. And, and to a certain degree, well, you know, I don't expect them to be. Maybe I'm cynical, right? But, but I think that's why I say I, I don't fault the group for that, but it's certainly in the rhetoric, right? 
Um, and I think it's important for it to have been in the rhetoric, but I think there was a, a discrepancy between the rhetoric and the reality. Um, Has that had long-range consequences for people with AIDS? Sure. I mean, look at who's being affected now, globally, right? There you go. <laughs> David Barr, May 15th, 2007. Barr was a founding member of Treatment and Data Committee, which became Treatment and Action Group when it split from ACT UP in 1992. In this clip, he defends their collaboration with pharmaceutical companies. Do you think that there's a relationship between the global access crisis and early policy decisions of ACT UP? Like what? Like our relationships with pharmaceuticals and... Was there something that we could have done differently way at the beginning when it was just a few factors that would have made this current situation not what it is now? Um, no. No. You mean like, would, would, could we have made issues of, I mean, no, no, no. Did we make issues of pricing and availability of drugs up front? Yeah. The very first action was about the price of AZT on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. You know, it was right there from the beginning. So no, I, th- I think no. So uh, also, your question, your question is assuming mm-hmm. that uh, is there a global access crisis? Yes, but it, it's the work of AIDS activists that we have the global fund. It's the work of AIDS activists that we have PEPFAR you know, for all of its problems. Um, For all of its problems, it's got a lot of people on treatment. It's the work of AIDS activists that have gotten hundreds of thousands of people on treatment since 2002. So is there a crisis? Yes. But you also, I think, need to look at the tremendous advances and success that have been, that have occurred. You know, have drug price, you know, can you get ARVs for, you know, less than $50 for, you know, per person now, per year? Yes. Yes. Why? Because we did our job. So what's the obstacle? The obstacle, well, well, first of all, the obstacle, I mean, the biggest obstacle besides political will is that the biggest obstacle is that there's a lot of poverty and corruption and a lack of infrastructure that could, if everybody, if the leaders of the world woke up and said, you know, let's cure AIDS today, or let's treat everybody for AIDS today, we couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we're, um, it's amazing how much we've been able to do with so little infrastructure in such a short amount of time. And the, the turning point was the AIDS conference in Durban, when up until Durban, it wasn't, there wasn't an, a, a discussion about how do we treat everybody. It was really, you can't do it. There is no infra- It wasn't that we don't want to. It's that there is no infrastructure. It's just not possible. The treatment is too complex. We can't do it in Africa. There's no infrastructure for it. In Durban, because of the work of TAC, but mostly, because one person with AIDS made a speech that 
transformed everything. I mean, I've never seen, I've never seen a, one person speaking create so much change as Edwin Cameron's speech at the AIDS conference. Mm. It was, I, I, I don't know how it happened, but when he, when that speech was over, the discussion was about how do we do this from then on in. And you could watch it. I was standing with Tony Fauci. I watched him listen to the speech and he was transformed. You know, it was. So the, so the idea that it's first world greed or racism is not the truth, that the problem of course is it's underdevelopment. The, of, of course it's the truth. Okay, I'm, know, I'm serious, I'm asking you. Of course it's first world greed and racism and, and sexism mm -hmm. and, and homophobia and drugism, what do we call it, uh -huh. I don't know. Um, of course it's all of those things, but that's not all that it is. And um, and are those things the greatest obstacles at the moment? Um, you think know. underdevelopment is the, is the greatest obstacle? Poverty. Yeah. yeah. It's probably the greatest obstacle at the moment. Okay. It's very interesting. It doesn't take away from any of the other. Mm -hmm. George Carter, April 16th, 2007. The, the, the global crisis in access that exists today, can you trace that to these early activist relationships with pharmaceutical companies? Is there something that could have been built in in those early days that could have avoided what we have now? The very first ACT UP action, which I didn't go to, it was before my time, was Wall Street. And the reason that people were there was because of the price of AZT. And it was coming out at $10,000. And they did have some initial success in getting it marked down a little bit. But as I recall at the time, too, uh, Burroughs Welcome, which has later become GlaxoSmithKline, simply raised the price of acyclovir, which is another extremely important drug for many, many people with HIV. And in fact, may be useful um, in Africa. The, the, well, that's another story. <laughs> the, at that point, as drugs began to be developed, and it became clear that the combinations were running anywhere from twelve to $20,000 per patient per year, the perspective I think most of us had, myself included, I'm sorry to say, was that that's, this is the way things are, and there's nothing that we can really effectively do about it, unfortunately, and so those people are going to die. And what the hell can we do about it? So I think that there was a buy-in too much to this idea that, that they had all the power, we have none, and there's nothing we can do. And it wasn't until 98 or 99 when CIPLA came around and said, hey, we can make this shit cheap. And suddenly, hope was began to bloom. Was there any voice inside ACT UP that critiqued this at the time? At the time, you mean like in the 90s? Mm-hmm. I don't recall particularly. I mean, I, 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 the only thing I can think of internationally that we did was when the Haitians were being um, held at Guantanamo. 
and different places, history repeats. Is it the exact same holding facility? Yeah. 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 Grizzly, huh? And I'll never forget Bob Rafsky being at the back table and going, what the fuck are they talking about this for? This ain't going to save my life. I was like, Bob, come on. Their lives matter too. But was there any kind of global? We weren't global then. Everyone was just so desperate trying to stay alive or help their friends stay alive for so long that there wasn't really an opportunity. You know, Eric Sawyer knows this stuff a lot better than I do. So could you trace the current global access crisis to a lack of vision in ACT UP at, at those crucial moments? I don't know. Yeah, in a certain extent, it's a lack of vision. I think there was a lack of really uh, figuring out more novel ways to attack the industry. I think that's because there was this fear, because the industry was, was and is holding all our lives, mine included, as a person living with hepatitis C, hostage. We're being held hostage by them because they say, if you fuck with us too much, we'll stop looking at your drugs, we'll stop developing them, and then where will you be? And so there was this kind of Stockholm syndrome happening that if you, if you argue too much or yell too loud and you aren't reasonable with them, they'll screw us horribly. And when you had the, um, the real complicity happens with the NIH and the FDA and the Health and Human Services, and that's when I get back to the CRADA agreements. And the CRADA agreements uh, arose, I think, out of Bay Dole, which was ostensibly to kind of put a cap on it. So that, in other words, if a lot of the research on a drug had been done at the NIH at taxpayer expense, including early clinical trials, and then that drug was licensed to a company to complete the, the research or the development piece of it, uh, that they would simply agree not to screw the crap out of people. I mean, I'm sure that's not exactly the terminology they used in the credit agreements, but essentially that's what they were. Um, and one of the things I'll never forgive Peter Staley for as I understand it, and forgive me if I'm wrong, Peter, but was that he went down to Congress and testified as an activist that the CRADA agreements were um, stymieing AIDS drug development. And I think that was a horrific mistake. I think that was the kind of thinking that um, characterized a lot of treatment activists. And to this day, I mean, I, I'm very disappointed with the AIDS Treatment Action Coalition, this ATAC group, which seems to hand out a lot of money to people of color to learn how to be so-called pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company aware so they can go to these meetings and do what? And it begins to almost smell like one of these grassroots organizations that um, Shearing Plow, for example, was famous for around hepatitis C creating grassroots organization fronts that were really nothing more than marketing tools for them. Which actually, in that See? book I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, uh, Marsh Angel mentions. And so that kind of colonization of the mind, I think, had a really enormously deleterious impact. Yet, on the other hand, I didn't come up with any particularly good strategies or ideas to say, how do we deal with these motherfuckers? I still don't know. I wish I did. I mean, the only thing I can think of is um, 
uh, not something I care to put in print. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what that could be? <laughs> yeah. So you, I mean, you really start to see the the creep of this this charity attitude, right? Where you have the priority on developing the drugs, on developing the drugs, and you have so much of the other key components of how to get the drugs into bodies just completely deprioritized because the people who were so focused on the drugs, you know, they were not the kinds of people that were having access issues. They were not the kinds of people who didn't have insurance, and so. You know, you really, I think so much about these interviews as you see the way that the priorities clashed and are shaped and changed and what's dropped and what's subjugated and what becomes dominant. And and most importantly, I think over and over again, you kind of hear why. And what, I, yeah, go ahead. I sort of wonder whether, you know, I think the way that this is typically presented uh, is a sort of story of inevitability where this sort of iron cage of bureaucracy, the Viberian iron cage, just ensnares <laughs> social movements as, as uh, almost ineluctably. Right. And I, I wonder whether or not we think that's true. I don't think it's true. But at the same time, I realize that that process of professionalization and bureaucratization has grip within these movements. But it also feels like, like I guess my question is, is there a way or can we learn things from this? Because I don't think it's inevitable, but I wonder what one takes in this if these forces are that as strong as they appear to be in the context of this movement. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I think what this makes me think maybe, you know, this is something that has been on my mind a lot with like the trips waiver that we've been talking about for weeks, but also really generally from uh also, the the last couple of years of um, you know the the discussion around single payer, the Medicare for all movement, um, and and things like that, is that there's such drive. It's such an easy impulse to say like, well, not yet, or it's like it's not time for for that part right. yet, right? And I mean, I think you see very clearly throughout a lot of the discussion here that you know, I mean, I think even the like the the you know the the david bar clip where he's he's yeah. defending he's really really defending the actions of tnd and the treatment action group um in sidling up to uh pharmaceutical companies saying you know is it perfect no but like we but we did that you know we accomplished this and you know he's he's right they they'd certainly accomplished you know there are certainly accomplishments um that that uh that they made the the thing is you know it's it's kind of like we again we talk about often um it's so much easier to fight for the one change right right fight for like the 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 one thing as opposed to saying like you know even if we even as opposed to understanding like you know if we if we just get the the one thing that's not going to like the the co like the coalition we could build if we understood that our one thing is related to so many other things like you hear so many people over the course of these uh, interviews, especially the people who are clearly the more disaffected, like understanding that and saying like, you know, the, the coalition that we could build, if we are very clear, there are more things that we could do. Greg Bordowitz talking about wanting to fucking make uh state single payer in New York, right. you know, like all of this stuff, you know, is, is it easier to, is it maybe easier to win? I don't know. 
uh, I guess like uh, the, apparently by the sound of it, a vanity seat at the board of like Burroughs Wellcome or something. Uh, <laughs> right. Or I mean, I don't, sorry, the, I don't know if that's ac- accurate. So at the a vanity seat at the board of a pharmaceutical company. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's easy to get a it's easy to get a seat at the table because they'll find somebody who will. Right. Represent the community, but then, you know, quote unquote, represent the quote unquote community. But then what like what does that ultimately get you and why back down? Right. And I I mean, I love the part in in Maxine's interview where she talks about, you know, the fact that you got to a certain point where you had two different sides of the group actively working against each other. Right. Where you had the people who are with treatment and data who were like, taking meetings with the pharmaceutical company that the more action oriented that like the women's caucus that the latino caucus that these other caucuses were like protesting again against and doing actions against and so you had them like ultimately like undermining each other and in many ways it's kind of like power played the organization right and like power um was just reproduced mimicking the sort of dominant structures of power that were just like all you know elsewhere in people's lives but but act up had this tremendous leverage and what what could have been out of act up i think you really see in like in um in greg's uh interview in particular but to me you also just get this sense of like what's lost yes but i think in failure there is so much like generative knowledge that can be gained from looking at okay like how did this fall apart exactly what were the what were the choices that they were forced to make or that they felt like they were forced to make in order to get access to these drugs well and i think it's clear that the yeah that the thing is then go for the big thing and also do not wait that's never going to be a there's never going to be a better time to do it right you know what i mean right, right. And, and I think it's always know, going to be deferred. Right. And, and I think, you know, the, one of the most important things I think that ACT UP did was really change the relationship of people to um, their medical care and people to like pharmaceuticals. Yes. But we can take that and go so much further with it. And I think, you know, if you look at how far the movement for like health justice got on the back of ACT UP, just if you just consider between the years of like, you know, 87 and 92, which is what Sarah's new book is covering. Like, if you just look at what came out of that, right, there's a lot there to work with in terms of trying to build movement power going forward. And also, I think it's good to, like, be honest about how things went down and learn from mistakes, because, like, what point was that failure other than to, you know, it's like there's no point in hiding it and and making it invisible. Yeah. Right. Also, Um, if you hear this, Sarah Schulman, come on death panel. Yeah. Sarah, come on death panel, please. (laughs) Um, that would be a lot of fun. So, yeah, I mean, we really just wanted to let, uh, let it kind of be there. let you guys experience it for yourselves and share some of what we've been digging into. Um, obviously it's like, I think there's a lot of stuff that's relevant to a lot of the topics we've been discussing recently. Um, so that's where we're going to leave it today, but we've got one last clip before we go. Listeners, thank you for hanging out with us on this episode. If you'd like to support the show again, please become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Well, then this is my final question for you, Anne. Concretely, what would you say would have to happen for there to be global access to the meds that we now have available in the U.S.? There would have to be political will that doesn't exist yet to provide that medicine free 
and set up systems of delivery where it somehow was was provided as a general public health service and not specifically to these people who are being identified in these particular mechanisms because of the stigma. I think that it, with the stigma, it's going to be a really long time for people to get access because it's too, it's too, it's too difficult, it's too dangerous, it's too challenging for them to always be able to figure out how to identify those resources even when they're there right now. And too much, it's going to take so long to change these in intense cultural and social hurdles. Um, so I think that there will eventually be access, but I'm afraid that it's going to reflect the degrees of access that exist for people with other kinds of diseases or resources. Um, although I have to say, I have been impressed by the revolutionary potential that has been manifested in the AIDS arena around access to medicines and so many sort of, uh, I guess I would almost think of them as sort of, uh, so many mountains have sort of fallen, have sort of revealed themselves to kind of be paper mountains or paper tigers, things that were unassailable, that fell because of, more than anything else, the moral rightness of the issue. So I, I would say that there is the possibility for seeing something in the AIDS arena that we haven't seen in other, in other arenas, that this will cause major shifts. Um, but, um, but the scale is incredible and the speed of the epidemic is incredible and so many more people need to be involved. And I think they're getting involved. But, um, you know, for years in ACT UP, we would talk about international issues and the people who were talking about that were the people who were from those countries. The Latin American activists, you know, the people who lived in sort of diaspora communities in the United States, Haiti, and um, it just wasn't seen as an issue for ACT UP at the time, and so it feels like, I'm glad it's happening now, but I just, you know, I just wish that there had been a way to be able to, you know, go back and, and have that kind of activity happen a few years back because so much more could have been done. Okay. Thank you.
Hey, <laughs>